This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. All this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm back at the University of Greenwich with Dr Chris Nunn. Hi Chris, how are you? I'm good, thank you. And how are you? I'm not too bad. And this time uh, we're talking about a film. Last time we were podcasting together, we were talking about a film that I told you I couldn't even remember whether I saw it at the cinema or not. That's how kind of... um, (laughs) complex and ambivalent my relationship to that film was this time i can tell you i remember vividly uh when i saw this film this was uh as as you probably can as well we'll we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit um in a minute we're we're talking about um star trek generations which i know is a film that maybe has for many fans lost some of the sheen that it had when it was first released as that kind of big uh cinema release for the next generation crew but for me i think uh, I'll never lose that sort of memory of what it was like going to the cinema. I went to see this film at the Empire Leicester Square, which was kind of the, the most exciting place you could go in London to see it. I'm convinced, now I don't know if this is my faulty memory or if this is something that really happened, that they had some kind of laser show before the film. Is that possible? Have I imagined this? Have you ever um, heard of people talking about this, that they did that at the Empire Leicester Square at one point? Uh, again, uh, uh, as to the Empire Leicester Square, I can't comment because I saw the film at the Odeon and Brighton Marina. Right. Um, where there definitely wasn't a laser no, show. No, probably not. <laughs> so I'm, just, uh, I'm just trying to think if I've, I've never heard or, or read anything about it. But um, The weird thing is, if it didn't happen... There must be something about this film that, that made this impression on me that in my mind it's been kind of, um, uh, you know, this, this fake memory has been created of this futuristic sci-fi extravaganza uh, that was going on in the theatre as everyone was kind of getting ready to watch this film. And, and also just, you know, the film itself and particularly, I suppose, for a lot of people, that crash scene mm. was just jaw-dropping uh, mm. for me as a, you know, as a big Star Trek fan at the time going into the cinema. Um, so... I think I have quite a soft spot for this film, um, and this is something we can we can sort of talk about the merits Absolutely, and demerits yeah. of this film. But um, I'm not one of the people who thinks this is complete trash and the worst of the next gen films or, or whatever. I actually, you know, I don't think it's too bad. I think it's a flawed film. But you know, there's I, I, I suppose what I felt watching it this week in preparation for this is it's a film that maybe is never quite more than the sum of its parts, mm. but a lot of its parts are actually really good, for yeah. my money anyway. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think it, um, 
it seems to get a bad rap, mm. um, especially among kind of diehard Star Trek fans, possibly many of whom are listening to this. Um, I should go and watch Die Hard instead. Yes, indeed. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> go, go, go and have a good time. But I, I think the um, the film has some really interesting elements and things that that, that really reflect. Uh, exactly what you want from mm-hmm. Star Trek. Uh, maybe, maybe it's an elongated episode. Maybe it, it just does uh, tries to go on too long. I absolutely appreciate that it manages to kill Kirk twice, <laughs> and and that possibly both of those deaths are a bit controversial. Maybe not that first one. I remember resonating quite a lot, and then of course in subsequent years I've heard Shatner joke. You know, it wasn't Captain on the bridge, but it was Bridge on Captain. Mm. Um, and this was, to be fair, they actually killed Kirk three times. They went for the hat trick because they'd shot an original ending where Kirk was shot in the back. They didn't like it, went, went down badly with the test screenings, so they did this kind of weird bridge. For, for me, it's partly it's the way that he is like, he's almost like being crucified. He's sort of mm. holding onto the bridge and flipping down. And then it actually happens. I mean, not that he dies because he's not quite dead, but it happens off screen, mm. which again is slightly weird. I've, I mean, I do, I do think that whole we could come on in a bit to talk about that ending the fact that they reshot that ending it was quite a stressful situation going back recreating at great expense mm-hmm. this whole set that they built and then dismantled because the national park people were like you know you have to take everything back you're, you're you know you're ruining our national park or whatever um i'm not quite sure that they got it right second time either um and and yeah i, th- I think for a lot of fans that's not the the death that they wanted captain kirk to have I, I can sort of see that i mean if you think about the way spock dies the way data mm-hmm. dies the way other big deaths have been handled in star trek there's there's not just the heroic decision to do something which you do get here there's the fact that they're kind of um you know data blows up that ship in nemesis so he, he kind of he, they they take things into their own hands somehow whereas with kirk it's literally like yes he's done the good thing and then he's just in the wrong place at the wrong time and he's mm. completely passive do you know he's literally just hanging on to that bridge and it's going to kill him and there's nothing he can do mm. so i can sort of see the argument that maybe he should have blown up the rocket do you know what i mean he, yeah, he could have totally. been the guy to go up to the rocket and uh manually blow it up with him on it and then that would have been the kind of heroic um, self-sacrifice whereas actually he never maybe that's what it is both Data and Spock sacrifice themselves knowingly whereas Kirk just gets into this risky situation and it for once goes wrong having said that if we are if we are pointing out that the movie actually kills Kirk mm-hmm. let's say twice in the mm. way that it actually plays out the first death is the noble self-sacrifice it is yeah he knew that yeah possibly going into that place was the wrong thing to do but it was the right thing to do because it would save the, mm-hmm. the people on the Lakul or, or you know uh, save the Enterprise B and because um, he's seen the Wrath of Khan so he knows the yeah, kind of symbolism knows. of like yeah. leaving the bridge because <laughs> there's that great moment where Harriman is going to do it and yeah. Kirk is sitting in the captain's chair really smug and, and like hey you know I'm in the captain's chair yeah. this is great and then he just has that line from off screen mm. which I've always thought sounds weirdly dubbed it doesn't it almost doesn't sound like william shatner i think because the work because it doesn't sound like kirk it seems like such an unkirk yeah thing to do somehow but yeah he you're right he's he's going down there i don't know if he knows what's going to happen necessarily but you're right he's putting himself in the line of uh, a fire in a sense in the line of danger and and to talk about the film from a production point of view it is interesting that scene and that sequence is interesting because it was never meant to be Chekhov and it was never meant to be Mm -hmm. uh, Scotty it was meant to be uh, Bones and it was meant to be uh, Spock 
Um, which so explains is, why Chekhov is suddenly dealing with the medics. Yes, right. Yeah, <laughs> which exactly. I thought was a yeah, bit yeah, random. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's, there's, there's a few things that are uh, inconsistent yeah. uh, that don't quite gel. Having said that, the first time I saw the film, much like yourself, mm. I, uh, I was young and um, along for the ride. Yeah. In terms of that, that early section, um, and it's about, I mean, I think it's like about sort of 18 minutes, something like that, the first chunk mm-hmm. of the film. I mean, it's a fairly hefty, it's not just a scene, it's not just like a cameo, you, you know, for those characters. It is like a, a short, it's like a short film almost, that kind of death of Kirk at the beginning. Um, yeah, I've always thought it works quite well. I think that James Doohan and Walter Koenig really sell it. And they they sell, I mean, James Doohan particularly, that, you know, when they come down and they see that kind of massive rip in the side of the ship, absolutely sells that kind of, uh, the kind of tragic moment if you know what i mean through them because you know we don't see kirk kirk is is vanished and then again i mean talking about this as which i suppose is what i sort of want us to focus on a little bit today is kind of how does this work as a a tv porting into the cinema if you know what i mean Mm -hmm. because this is very much this is not the motion picture where uh, okay, we're going to reimagine Star Trek for the cinema. This is literally, okay, one week we're filming all good things, the next week we're filming Generations. And literally they were filming those scenes on the Enterprise B while they were filming all good yeah. things next door, effectively. Yeah, so they were, they were yeah. overlapping these two things. But also you've got that sense, which you get again in, in some of the Star Trek films, you get it in First Contact, I guess, of suddenly this sense of the scale of the ship. And I think, uh, again, that shot of the Enterprise B with that kind of gash ripped out of yeah. it where... Kirk would have been um, again kind of sells that and it sells it in a very cinematic way mm. because it does have that sense of scale it does have that kind of sense of grandeur um, that was one of the things that sort of impressed me about it is that although they were running straight from the TV show into the movie although they were largely using the same sets and just relighting them and, and you know um, sort of sprucing them up a bit a bit of new carpet a bit of etc I actually think they made a lot of effort to make this look cinematic. Yeah. Uh, and to, and I know they, they brought in an Oscar-nominated um, director of photography and yeah. so on. Um, and I think it really shows. And I think if you watch All Good Things and then you watch this, as much as many people say, oh, All Good Things was a better story, they should, you know, that should have been the movie. Everyone loves All Good Things. Um, there's no contest. This looks ten times better you, you know just visually uh, musically you, you know yeah, all absolutely. those kind of ways this is like a massive cut above I think but for what All Good Things had to do as well which involved kind of time travel uh, within the world of the TV show and that is very specific because mm. Uh, myself, uh, our last podcast, we, we we were able to watch it on the projector. Mm. We were able to watch Nemesis on on the projector at my house, and so one of the things that that always gets me watching stuff on the projector at my house is whether it's four by three or sixteen by nine. Mm-hmm. Am I in television land, you know, nineties television land, or am I in uh, kind of cinema land? And um, you know, all good things. Uh, every time I put on a Star Trek episode that haven't been remastered and mm. we, the, there are issues around whether Star Trek should be remastered uh, to give us that kind of wider scope um, but every time I watch an episode of Star Trek I am suddenly realising I'm watching a square on mm. my wall and not the widescreen kind of version and so while fans could say yes maybe All Good Things was the better story and I think I'm inclined to agree with them um, All Good Things was also confined to the world of the 
TV mm. because it had to hark back to earlier episodes. It had to be able to do that in order for the story to be told, and you can't change the image. Mm. You can't suddenly go back to the Enterprise, that, that look of season one, and, and, you know, season one of The Next Gen is incredibly troubled. Um, so you can't get back to that look of season one and those awful uniforms and the and the whole thing. You can't... If you had tried to do that in the cinema, if yeah. you had tried to recreate that aesthetic... Then it, you'd be doing a kind of JJ-style reboot. You'd have, you'd have to do something with it, wouldn't you? you yes, you, you couldn't would. just you couldn't recreate. And even so, they struggle slightly. I mean, like some more than others I think get away with playing down seven years Patrick Stewart of course makes no difference he doesn't no. age seemingly anyway but I Tasha think Brent Spiner you work. can tell no Denise Crosby you can she just doesn't look quite doesn't the same quite and I think it's maybe partly there isn't because she's been away for quite a period mm-hmm. as well you kind of notice it more Frakes they obviously didn't even bother trying they had no, to they use didn't. archive footage right, <laughs> yeah. someone was clearly like yeah okay you could shave the beard but there's no way yes, anyone's no going to buy that you know <laughs> my wife was the first person to point it out and bear in mind this is her first watch mm. of The Next Generation but Megan looked at it the second you know and there I am raving about it mm. I mean I think all good I still think all good things is absolutely fantastic mm. and there I am raving about it and the second we cut to Picard and uh, and, and Yar in that shuttle, Megan looked at it and went, "Nah, that's not her seven years ago. Mm. It doesn't look the same." Mm. And I, I then rewatched it with new eyes and went, "Yeah, you know what? You're right. Like they do pull it off for a lot of them. I don't know. Do they pull it off for Deanna Troy because she's there? I think. Yeah, no, I think she gets it's away fine. With it, but... I would say. I mean, yeah, it's also, of course, you know, we now have the benefit of watching. All good things in HD. Yeah, I mean, you can actually see uh, someone on another podcast um, on Trek FM recently. They were doing a commentary on All Good Things. And they pointed out you can actually see the glue sticking Picard's beard on in a couple of shots. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of, they, it was not designed to be seen in the level of no. quality that, although they were filming in this, you know, actually in sort of high quality on film or whatever. Yeah, it was not intended that anyone would ever see it at that level. No. And that's another thing that comes out in the in the movie generations that I I, I saw. I think it was Herman Zimmerman who was the designer on yeah. the film was talking about in an interview because they did decide to redesign things slightly they did redesign the bridge uh, as well as lighting it very differently they kind of moved things around a bit they kind of opened out some of the areas and so on they uh, changed the shape for example of the window in Picard's ready room so lots of things like that they thought they'd get away with and he said I, I think it was him who said basically what they decided was that what they wanted was for the fans to think oh that's what it looked like all along it's just we didn't see it properly do you know what I mean yes, and that maybe, that maybe the, what they wanted was to give them a glimpse of the Enterprise as it really was as mm. opposed to through the kind of slightly misty lens of, of the TV screen yeah. and, and I think there's absolutely some truth in that because if you I mean I remember watching those Blu-rays the Next Gen for the first time when they brought them out and just being amazed at how different it looked from my memory of seeing Next Gen, you, you know, back in the day, not to mention rewatching it more recently. You know, the colours are so much more vibrant. Yeah. Um, the, the image is so much sharper. Uh, you know, and there is that real sense of like, oh, wow. And the same with the DS9 documentary recently. Yes. You know, we're seeing the same thing with DS9 of like, wow, that is the show that we were seeing through a glass darkly. Totally, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's absolutely. kind of, um, and that really is what it was like here they were obviously fudging it slightly because they were reinventing things um but i don't feel 
I totally feel they get away with it. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't. It, it looks like it, the ship's had a slight facelift, but it's not. It's very much the same ship, and it looks the same inside and out. And they, a lot of the models, they, they brought back some of the models they hadn't used for years. They'd had when mm. they first started making the, the the show, and and again rewired them, kind of spruced them up, did a lot of that. But you know, it's not like they redesigned from scratch if you know what I mean there absolutely. isn't that kind of just, there is an absolute continuity from the series into the film um, just the film is like you know uh, next gen looking its best absolutely I think what they get away with though and this comes down to the uniforms partly as, mm. uh, as a kind of viewer is that this is the next generation crew in transition mm-hmm now, fans or anyone who knows the franchise knows that kind of Star Trek continues. <laughs> Star Trek, Star Trek hasn't finished. It's still going on in DS Nine and it's still going on in Voyager. And I think by changing the uniforms slowly through the film, you get quite an interesting effect. Where then the look of the film, uniforms aside. Mm becomes a kind of okay but this is an enterprise in transition mm. something's happening the world is changing mm. outside of the enterprise this isn't quite the seven years that we saw this is something different by putting people in uniforms and of course there is there is a whole story to the uniforms mm-hmm. and there were the original uniforms that can now only be seen on action figures mm-hmm. uh, i have been on ebay this week looking to see if i can get myself a set of although those interestingly figures, i think the picard uniforms are quite similar to them aren't they is, is that right i think or, or maybe it's the lower decks ones. some of the uniforms that we've seen in some uh, of yes it's the, i think it's the lower decks, lower decks ones, ones because right. um look it's almost it's, the same they do look almost the same because it's the it's the the collar yeah there's the color yeah, and then it's black, and then they've got and the kind it's... of original series breast uh, yes. panel thing yeah. going on. Yeah, all in all, looking at the action figures, I can't say what they look like when mm. Rick Berman said no, don't do this. Mm. But looking at the action figures, I was like, that's absolutely hideous, and I'm very glad that that never made its way. <laughs> well, interestingly. Uh, the, the reason about David Carson, who directed the film, said the reason they changed their mind. I mean, this may he may have been covering for the fact that they weren't happy with with the uniform design, was that they felt that because they were doing all these tweaks to the ship, they didn't want to alienate the fans with too much new mm. stuff. And obviously, arguably, by the time you get to first contact, they've got a new ship, they've got new uniforms, everything is kind of new. It's a, it's a refresh in a mm. sense. Um, uh, but I think it is interesting why you know. Why did they not either go with the next gen uniforms or the DS9 Voyager uniforms? What does it mean that they're kind of people are changing? And, and sometimes they are changing. It does seem a bit bizarre. Like you're thinking, okay, so when did Riker find time to go and get a different uniform? Mm. And why is Picard back in his old uniform at the end when he was in the, the newer one? There is a sort of uh, slight kind of musical chairs feeling yeah, the way they, they keep swapping around. Um, but you could say that they're moving to the dark. You, you know, DS9 is a darker show. It's one reason they wanted these uniforms, which are largely black. Mm-hmm. Um, Riker's uniform in, in this, I think, is Avery Brooks's uniform because they didn't have time to, and, to make him his own one. And indeed, uh, yeah, LaForge's is also uh, Colmini's. Right, there you go. Which yeah, is yeah, visibly yeah. too big for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which makes, yeah, you, it's true. You can see they, they've got the kind of um, sort of little pleaty bits where they mm. obviously tried to kind of pull it in a bit. That's Yeah, that's a good point. But I suppose you could say maybe it is as you say enterprise and transition it is maybe getting darker and the film as much as it's kind of a 
a sort of holiday romp and a kind of passing of the torch and all this stuff. It's quite a dark film. Absolutely. Not only is it about mortality, you know, you've got Kirk dying twice, you've got Picard losing his family, you've got this sense of loss all the way through, but it's also got this quite kind of grown-up theme of, uh, you know, the road not taken and kind of regrets for the life that you haven't lived and, I mean, quite contemplative stuff going on in the midst of this slightly uh, knockabout, slightly kind of all-over-the-place plot there's, there's, there's quite a lot in there and some of it is quite um, serious very serious I think the themes of that film uh, I find extremely resonant mm-hmm. still now um, I've got no idea what I thought as a kid like mm-hmm. I said I was on, along for the ride um, I've watched it several times since um, it is one of the next gen films uh, again I've seen it derided by fans I've never felt that way about it I've always thought this is a film you can go back to and find some core really crucial Star Trek themes mm. are coming out of this film uh, about duty about sacrifice about what it means to be a captain especially the Kirk on Picard scenes and I understand that mm. during filming that Shatner was actually very emotional actually having to say the line you can't argue with the captain I can't argue with the captain of the Enterprise who am right. I to argue yeah, yeah. you know that that for him was quite an emotional thing to say because mm. this is a passing of a torch and then when you think about a documentary like the captains well mm. yes we get a bit more uh, behind the scenes information on why this means so much mm. um you know, other strange things. It was meant to be Carol Marcus, wasn't it? That was in the house with oh, Kirk really? at one Antonia. point. Yeah. You know, instead of this, this, you know, we've created Antonia. Yeah. But again, I think at the executive level, they thought, well, we can't really hark back. Mm-hmm. You know, what would have been twelve years to that other film and yeah, Carol yeah. Marcus? So you know, what we'll just stay down the line mm-hmm. here. Um, but Picard and his family as well. I, I have always have always and will always I think find that scene incredibly emotional and difficult to watch because you know uh, and I watched recently um, recently a a colleague of mine said um, uh, came over to our house with her son and said well you've got a task today my husband says you've got to show uh, my son the best episodes of the next generation Mm -hmm. because we know Star Trek cards coming up and he's Mm -hmm. just about old enough he's 10 to kind of understand these these shows you watched a bit of discovery mm-hmm. and i said well this is a difficult uh, this is a very difficult task but if i've got to do it i would have to put on the best of both worlds part one part two mm-hmm. if you've got to introduce someone you've got to say this is where next gen obviously next gen prior to that was an extremely problematic show mm-hmm. and i personally don't have much time for much content of either seasons one or two mm-hmm. um as I hope many fans also feel. Uh, and again, Chaos on the Bridge is an interesting uh, insight into that. Um, but So I showed those two episodes, and then we got to the end of those, and I said, but really, if you want to know where Next Gen decided to kind of push the envelope in terms of what television was doing at the time, especially in terms of what you might expect from a syndicated sci-fi show, you have to watch Family. Mm-hmm. Because that is the show... That is the episode that says this series is not just going to deal with a two-parter and then forget that it ever happened. Mm. And we know that that resonates because we know it comes up in later episodes like I, Borg and Descent, and we know it comes up in First Contact, and we know it's going to have an impact 
we think on on, on what Star Trek Picard is going to focus on. Mm, mm. But family, and I can't, as someone who lives with his brother, (laughs) you know, and you get that familial relationship in family between Picard and his brother that I think I understand all too well um, because I'm living it. Mm. And, I, and, and, and you watch them interact with each other as kind of very different but also very similar characters. And in Generations, that scene, although those few scenes where he realises that his brother's dead and his nephew's dead, my goodness, mm. this is actually really bold mm. in my view. It's not the kind of you know, the next generation pushed the envelope in so many ways, but ultimately it was quite a woolly show mm. where you could feel comfortable. The best of both worlds and family maybe as an episode is one of not feeling too comfortable, but it does end on very positive notes. Mm. And in, in generations, I don't know that we're getting the positive notes. Well, I wondered about that. I mean, is there a sort of, what's the kind of resolution to this film and, and is there a kind of happy because Picard sort of seems okay by the end of the film and that's one of the one of the things that I do actually think is maybe a flaw of the film is I felt watching it today anyway that his journey is slightly missing something because I think it's sort of implied that his experience in the Nexus somehow resolves his character journey because when he comes out of it he has that speech with Riker at the end where he seems quite kind of back to the old Picard but I don't think they ever quite nail that that's never quite hit you know straight down the line enough for me the whole storyline about his family yeah i mean i think you're right absolutely at the beginning of the film even just the way he gets that news on the holodeck Mm. uh that scene with troy in particular is absolutely you know probably the best picard troy scene uh, of of the whole you know seven plus Mm. uh years of next gen absolutely you, you know incredibly moving very well done by patrick stewart beautifully lit and beautifully shot and everything as well but also i suppose the the sticking point for a lot of people i think is his nexus experience and i did always think i have to say i always thought this is a bit random and this is a bit silly and why is he in a sort of hokey uh, like PBS production of A Christmas Carol. And I know Patrick Stewart was doing Christmas carols. That's probably what, partly where that came from. But the, the, the fact that they're all in this kind of Dickensian outfits and so on, it does, I, I do think they slightly dropped the ball in terms of the production design of that scene. I think if you shut your eyes and like listen to that scene, it's actually quite effective. And for me, and maybe this is partly about getting older, maybe some of those themes about regrets and you know things like that resonate more when you're older. Maybe having kids makes you more aware of like the potential for loss maybe having lost other people makes you more aware i mean i you know that sense i I sort of bought it more this time around that you know you can have that experience where you've lost someone in your life who's important to you of having a dream and talking to them and then sort of half realizing hang on but you're supposed to be dead uh you know this can't be real and i feel like that's sort of what picard goes through in that moment but that but but you before you realise that, you believe it's real. And I suppose that's what that scene has to sell, is the idea that it, only seconds after we've seen him in this kind of action-adventure scenario, failing to stop Soren, then, then we see it, then, then the screen goes black, you get a couple of seconds of kind of black and silence in the theatre or whatever, uh, because also we've just seen the Enterprise ripped to shreds by that wave, uh, the you know, supernova wave thing, and a thousand people being killed horrifically. Uh and then suddenly we have to buy that he's in this other place and he doesn't know really who he is or what's going on or 
he doesn't remember what's just happened or or how he's got there i suppose and i think maybe the film doesn't quite doesn't totally sell that for me but i think if you can kind of go along with the idea that this is like a dream this is like a sort of um you know, and they do kind of play with that in Kirk's as well. You know, you walk through one door and you end up somewhere else in a different mm-hmm. time and so on. There is something quite dreamlike about it. Um, then emotionally, maybe that beat does sort of work and it does very much tie into Picard's story and to Picard's overall story about does he want to, does he regret the decisions that he's made in his life and so on. Uh, and it is very moving. And again, when, when he says that to, uh, I think it's meant to be his son rather than his nephew at this point, you know, he says, go on, go on without me, basically that kind of letting go mm. of this fantasy. It's very moving. It's much more moving than what we get with Kirk, you know, on his horse. Um, and again, Patrick Stewart really sells it. For me, it's just that the production design of that scene is so uh, sort of overwhelming. Mm. It slightly undermines the... Um, emotional intent of the scene because you're so distracted by it and thinking why are we in uh you know even if it was in a sort of french um you know like in family that the family home and it was all a bit rustic and whatever okay fine you'd buy that but why are we suddenly in dickensian london uh, in picard's head you know yeah we know he's we know patrick stewart's english we know that picard is kind of literary and old-fashioned but for me that didn't that even now that doesn't quite make sense as a fantasy. Um, it seems weird. In a similar fashion, Kirk's whole sequence is a nostalgia thing. Mm. But then, actually, to me, while I agree with you completely about the design of both of those sequences, uh, or both of those fantasies and the worlds that both of the captains go to, um, it's not about the captains. It's about the audience. Mm. It's attempting to affect, and there is a lot of research at the moment, including, I believe, just today I was sent a call for paper on a conference on science fiction on nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, special conference. Here we go. We're going to talk about science fiction, uh, film or television, in relation to nostalgia. Okay, cool. So this is a thing now, and I think it's always been there. Perhaps maybe now I'm formulating my paper, but just in those, <laughs> just just in those um, two sequences, I don't think it's about Kirk. I don't think it's about Picard. I think it's about how can you affect an audience mm. into thinking that this is somewhere they want to be. And while it's an imagined world, I suppose what's bizarre is it's an imagined history or life for Picard, but it's a real memory for Kirk. That is confusing, I think, yeah. But to be honest, though, I buy Kirk's one because mm. I've seen Star Trek V. I've seen him yeah. climbing the mountain. <laughs> yes, I, I, I can see that Kirk in his off hours, That's the. I, I totally buy that is what he might do. Mm-hmm. He's a kind of outdoorsy guy. He would be riding horses and chopping wood and stuff. I buy all of that. He probably would have a girlfriend. You, you know, it's it's the thing with Picard, it just feels so... It's too. It's pushed too far mm. somehow, and it's too much of a stretch. And I, I do think that that is maybe one of the bigger missteps in this film is that scene because it kind of opens itself up to ridicule. Yeah. At just the point where you actually have to really buy into this idea of the nexus, because the film only works if you totally accept the nexus is going to grant you everything you want. It's going to be. You know, it's going to be so seductive that only Patrick, only Captain Picard, can resist it. Uh, because Patrick, uh, I keep saying Patrick Stewart. <laughs> Only Patrick Stewart can resist it. Only Captain Picard. I don't know if Patrick Stewart could resist it. You know, who knows? We don't know. He's, he's not behind. been said there. <laughs> it, he's never been. I said did there. see an interview <laughs> with him once where he said Malcolm McDowell is still there. 
yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So, you know, <laughs> right, okay. uh, so yeah. uh, maybe Malcolm couldn't resist it either. No, no. Well, anyway, I mean, and of course we never get to see what Soren's nexus is like, which might have been kind of interesting, or even Guinan's, which again would have been really interesting. But, you know, we, we see Kirk's and we see Picard's. Um, and you kind of can't help thinking maybe it takes Kirk a bit longer because his fantasy is a bit more plausible. Picard actually... The terrible thing with this film is like, in All Good Things... I mean, I know, admittedly, they wrote this film a year before All Good Things, weirdly, even though it follows on from it. But All Good Things, you get that final scene where Picard comes and he joins the rest of his crew, he plays poker with them, he says, I should have done this a long time ago. It's like he's letting go of his kind of slightly frosty side. They're all going to be friends, they're all going to be this great family. In Generations, you get one scene where Picard gets to be happy and joke around and have fun and then he finds out his family are all dead <laughs> and that's it and the rest of the film he has to go around sort of moping and uh, and feeling miserable and cut and shutting himself off again from his entire the crew basically them, yeah. and literally uh going into his room and hiding from them and saying uh you, you know i'm not going to talk about it. i'm not you know and ironically he has that speech with data saying sometimes you have to learn to integrate your emotions he's not doing that at all he's completely like just shutting the door on anyone else and even on his job i mean he walks off the bridge in the middle of effectively a crisis and says to Riker, you deal with it i'm not interested i couldn't care less about this mm. and even with troy it takes quite a bit of nudging and he's sort of slightly in denial saying it's it's all right you know it's all right and and, and talking about his nephew as if he's still alive and so on there's that real sense that you know He's not really accepting his his emotions at all. But also just that he doesn't get to be happy for more than five minutes. And then in the Nexus, he thinks he's going to be happy. And it's literally, it's probably like two minutes in the Nexus scene before he suddenly, he realises this is wrong. This is not right. I'm I'm Captain Picard. I'm not going to be fooled by, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Seeing those little supernovas. What is Whoopi Goldberg doing behind that tree? Um, Um, Why is there a merry-go-round in my living room? Exactly. Um, there's something interesting, though, if you have to talk about the difference between um, television and a kind of film, mm. and that's what really, uh, I suppose, the next generation uh, cast and crew, the writers, everyone, uh, was dealing with at this stage is the transition between the two things. Um, the next generation quite famously moved in the third season to a sort of character-driven model that mm-hmm. we're going to tell weekly episodes but they're going to be about our people and we're going to get to know Geordie and we're going to get to know Worf and we're going to get to know Data these are the uh, these are the people who are critical to our story more broadly but these are the people who we want to uh, focus on week by week but the Hollywood model and this is going back a long way the Hollywood model of um of telling stories is the hero's journey. Mm. This is Joseph Campbell's monomyth that got, um, I would say either adapted or perhaps bastardized into a kind of way to generate Hollywood screenplays. And by the time that's done, and you could possibly talk about a lot of the original series movies in this context as well. But by the time that's done, there's only room for one hero. Mm -hmm. We cannot talk about ensembles here. They don't belong. So there's a hero, and there's a hero, and he's on a journey. And in, in Generations, it's quite plain that Picard is the hero, you know, and he's mm. on a journey, and the audience are following him on his journey through grief, through mm. acceptance, through... Um, which I don't think quite plays, if I'm honest. Like, 
you know, I, I, I still respect the film, but I think if you look at it from that point of view, it is found wanting, especially because of this, as you say, the weird Dickensian Christmas, mm. you know, and I don't, but it's that transition from being able to tell stories week by week and be able to proudly say, which I'm not sure the next gen ever quite did. Certainly later shows like Deep Space Nine absolutely did. We have an ensemble here. We're all together. Um, but the next gen did, did in a way do that week mm. by week. Uh, mm. Again, some of those episodes are phenomenal. Some of those are absolutely unwatchable. Um, but here are our characters and this is who we're putting forward. And again, in the movies, they get lost. See, I, I felt this film actually did a better job than some of the original series movies of mm. at least giving everyone something to do. Maybe it's not that interesting. Maybe it's a bit... So some of them get more to do than others. But they... You know, Geordie sort of gets a... Not exactly a storyline, really, but a little... Mo- they get moments. Do you know what I mean? They get decent moments. I mean, I saw an interview with LeVar Burton, which I thought was quite interesting, where he pulled out something that I had never really even registered for me in the film particularly but he said he particularly liked the fact that Geordie was looking after those kids when the saucer was crashing because he thought that brought out a side of Geordie's character that you wouldn't really expect Um, I I think it's difficult I I know what you mean and I think with the films there's always a sense of they're kind of trying to tick off the boxes and make sure and you get that with the original series films as well make sure everyone has something to do and ideally one good scene so that that actor can feel like it was worth their time turning up for the film and the fans of that character can feel like they got something and Michael Dorn apparently was very angry about the opening scene with Worf going in the water and spent two hours in a meeting with uh, Braga and um, Maul basically trying to talk them out of it and eventually gave up um, because they insisted that it was it was worth it and it was funny and I actually think interestingly I think that scene is funny and it's almost it's probably the only funny thing in this film that for me works as it's intended to because I think that, you you know, you talked about Picard's journey. Picard's got this big emotional journey. Data has sort of got this big... Data mm. has literally got this big emotional journey and that he's got his emotion chip. But it's played complete, almost completely. There are one or two kind of... I mean, it's got a touching moment at the end with Spot. It's got a kind of slightly scary bit somewhere along the way where it's kind of freaky him out and so on. But broadly speaking, he just becomes comic relief. Mm. And for me, that's one of the things that really doesn't work about the film at all. Because I think as much as... Ironically, they thought they were taking data forward by giving them that emotion chip. And I saw an interview with Brandon Braga and he was saying, we felt, you know, we don't have to, we can take more risks with the character. It's not like a TV show where you couldn't change a character too much. This is a film, you know, we don't know, there might be another one in a few years. We can change the character. But I think actually what they did in that film is took him back to season one data, yeah. where he's totally kind of gauche. He's totally like out of step with everyone else. He's not fitting in. He's over the top. Brent Spiner is hamming it up the whole time. And I actually think that's one of the problems with the film is this kind of, you know, yes, Data having emotions is potentially interesting, but Data being totally unprofessional and just annoying everyone and saying inappropriate comic things in the middle of a dramatic scene is not actually helpful. Yeah. And it actually made me think in some ways is that the, another element of the comedy in the film that works, though, noticeably in that prologue in the original you get Scotty to Kirk you get the line you know is there something wrong with your chair captain that is classic original series comedy it's all this kind of slightly puncturing Kirk's mm. sort of um, 
you know standing in yeah, a way yeah. and, and undermining that and you get a lot of fantastic comedy out of that because it's character comedy and it's really kind of earned character comedy whereas I think some of the comedy in this film with the Next Generation crew as much as I love them it, it's, it doesn't feel as organic as that it doesn't feel as natural as that it feels like okay here's a joke because we've got to put some jokes in this film and we've got to put some jokes in the trailer um, and actually when you're watching it in those scenes in context you just start thinking god data's annoying in this film you, you know and, and he was my favourite character what's going on mm. you know they've just turned him into something sort of tedious I think in Next Gen the times when they do comedy and maybe it does work I mean I have a real soft spot for a fistful of datas for example I know some people hate that episode they think it doesn't work for me it works I find it very charming and it does make me laugh and I think they get away with it more when they all get to dress up and be someone else it works better than when they're being their slightly stuffed shirt Starfleet types do you know what Mm, I mean so like uh, and maybe that's why that first scene on the boat actually is quite funny Mm. I mean and you know that whole thing about data pushing uh Crusher into, yeah. into the sea, and and and, every, and then Geordie comes out and says that was not funny, and you think, yeah, it was. That's that's you yes. know probably the funniest yeah. moment in the film. In the film actually, yeah. <laughs> you know, Data's got it. That's, that's, that's the funniest thing that Data does in this entire <laughs> the movie. Whole film, you yeah. know, uh, when his storyline is ostensibly comic. So I mean, I don't know. Maybe it is just that thing of what's funny when they're all dressed up is they become slightly ridiculous and they are such serious characters and such kind of noble and kind of uh, straight down the line characters that it takes that now Kirk got that with the movies because they almost sort of reinvented Kirk in the movies as this kind of uh, flawed and almost slightly ridiculous character you know the movies really punctured his kind of ego because you do get that sense of Kirk in the original series and of William Shatner incidentally probably as someone with quite an ego quite a sort of regard for himself and the movies absolutely go to town with kind of puncturing that and that's where you get a lot of the kind of real comedy uh, character comedy from in that I don't think anyone would ever dare do that to Picard and I mean of course we'll have the Picard series coming along we saw in the trailer I guess Seven of Nine giving Picard a bit of a hard time no one is going to manage to uh, do to Picard what they did to Kirk in those movies of like chipping away at, he, at who he is and at, as, as his kind of heroism because Picard is such a kind of um, noble figure do you know what I mean and it would be too problematic I think to kind of undermine that you can undermine Kirk because he's a charmer and he's a kind of you know and also because so much of his kind of um, heroism is bound up in him being this handsome young guy and obviously he's you know he's a lot older by the point they start making the films and so on they can kind of play on all that I just think it doesn't and, and maybe that's one reason as well why the next gen films are less successful than the original series films because the original series films were really very much about that cast getting older and kind of losing some of their power and losing some of their um certainly losing their youth do you know mm. what I mean and, and how that affects them and how do they deal with that and even in this film you've got you know where, when did Sulu have a child and you know how old they all feel and Chekhov say I can't believe was I ever that young and you, and you sort of buy all of that um, I think with the next gen cast they couldn't quite do the same thing because they were all so grown up anyway it's almost like they haven't got there, there are no illusions to be disillusioned about there are no do you know what I mean because they're, they're and it was it's made hard y- to puncture those characters somehow and it was made yesterday. Mm. I mean, you know, yeah. they're there. They're right there. They haven't grown. I mean, that's what I thought All Good Things did so well. Mm. It's, you know, I thought that what that did so well was 
give us a glimpse into the future of these characters that we've got to know and that future looks less than perfect. And they're all kind of jerks, basically. I mean, yeah, Rife totally. Is pretty unpleasant. Data is unbearable. Uh, LaForge seems all right. Yeah, LaForge <laughs> seems fine. Well, Crusher seems overwritten. Yeah, yeah. Crusher seems okay, but there's obviously a bit of a, you know. In fact, actually, I loved Captain Crusher. I've got to say, I thought she was absolutely fantastic, and I still have the action figure mm-hmm. in case mm-hmm. anyone's wondering. So I thought, you know, she really. Yeah, she she hit some notes for me. I thought, yeah, that's mm-hmm. absolutely brilliant. Of course, you were going to do that. Um, <laughs> I can't say I was too sorry that Troy died, actually, but that was <laughs> well, that's a discussion for another time. It is. That's, a, that's, an, enti- that's an entire podcast. I mean, there's a whole talking about generations. There's the whole controversy, of course, about you know the woman driver and Troy crashing the, crashing the ship and so on. Yes, and I've heard Marina right. Sirtis talking about that and basically saying, look, you, you know. Uh, she's the one who managed to crash land this ship and not kill a single person mm. on the Enterprise um, you know in a very difficult situation uh, I, I don't know it, it never crossed my mind that Troy did anything wrong it seemed quite impressive to me at the time that she was able to take over that role and we know she's done the bridge office I think she should be able to do it but let, that was a pretty scary <laughs> moment and she acquitted herself pretty well I'd say so lest we forget that I believe Marina Sirtis actually got physically burned doing the scene she, right. yes absolutely well that scene I mean talking about the transition from TV to cinema that that is the scene I mean that's the mm. scene I remember you know as a kid watching this film and being blown away by it that scene goes on and on and on and it's really well done um, you can watch the documentaries the like, special features and stuff all about how they uh, shot that sequence with the model they were they were literally dragging that saucer along on on the truck and smashing through this kind of all these little ferns and things they built up and painted and so on um, and they had to it's, it's quite interesting I don't know if you see it they had to shoot the whole thing through a mirror because they didn't want to destroy their very expensive camera in the process. So you've got that shot, which is an absolutely, you know, it's a practical shot. It's not a kind of CGI shot, although there is a little bit of CGI. There is there is CGI in this film, but that was a totally sort of practical shot. Really tense, really effective. Uh, you know, when the, that saucer is about to crash, you're literally on the edge of your seat. And then the crash itself goes on and on and on and on. And at a certain point, I, this is something that struck me watching it today, it is quite artfully done I think more so I mean they, they couldn't have done it on the TV budget but also just the film is quite cinematic in that it takes artistic decisions from time to time interesting kind of creative decisions the music cuts out quite early on in that crash and you're just left with the sound effects of everything smashing a lot of it you're left with these kind of close like close up on Riker's face close up on War's face this kind of um it, it totally immerses you in that experience and the fact that it seems to go on much longer than you expect I think makes it feel quite traumatic and quite sort of powerful because there's a point where it's hit the ground and it's slowing down. You sort of think, okay, fine, that's it. They're they're not dead. They're not going to die from this. And yet it goes on and on and on and on and on. And then even at the end, when they've all been like thrown out of their chairs and everything and everything, and it's also the fact that it keeps getting worse and worse so this bridge gets damaged in the, to the level that you might see on the TV show then it gets more damaged then more things start falling out of the ceiling then there are kind of um, RSJs or something coming out of it you know who knows where uh, the, the damage gets worse and worse and worse the lights go out it gets completely black basically in there and then finally it stops and there's this kind of moment of silence and I think that's another thing this film does well which the TV show would never have done is it does on several there are several points where it stops for a good few seconds of either silence or maybe a little bit of music or something to kind of you know and relax and now take a breath and now we'll move on to the next bit and then you get that again an amazing shot of the saucer crashed and that huge uh, sort of swathe of jungle 
ripped out by it basically again really kind of selling the scale of what's just happened really selling the um what a huge object this is that has just crashed to earth and you get that as well with that with the shot where you can kind of see the like the the very edge of the saucer and you know it's it's mm. not a point it is a couple of decks i think isn't it because you yeah, want to yeah. forward and everything there and you get that sense again of the scale and the little people you can see on the top just before that wave comes and explodes. yes that's right yeah you can see um, them all there which apparently was all the vfx crew in the in the paramount car park wandering around and then they sort of composited them onto yes the, onto, onto the, the saucer the but it um, totally worked for me i just think that is that's probably the highlight of the film as a piece of cinema and I suppose what's bizarre is that that's um, what is that doing? That is uh, made up for in the budget by recycling footage from the undiscovered country. Yeah. Uh, when they blow up the Klingon bird of prey, I mean mm-hmm. that that that's what's very interesting. I suppose there's a few things we could hit on here actually in discussion, but that's what's very interesting in having a franchise that crosses TV and film. You've got... So, to make the film, and I suppose what's worth pointing out now, and I assume a lot of people know this, but maybe they don't, is that a lot more is riding on a cinematic release than is riding on a TV movie. Mm -hmm. The studio wants a return. It is not good enough. And we know from our last discussion Mm -hmm. on Nemesis, we know what happens when they don't get the return. Yeah. So... We have here a film that has enormous expectation to come in under budget and to bring us back some money. And the only reason it can come in under budget is because all of the material kind of existed already. Mm -hmm. You know, we knew we had the ship, we had the sets, we had... They they might go under. They might undergo a kind of minor redress, but we already have them, and this is absolutely key, because and this is why I guess I suppose uh, new uniforms. I don't think they got poo pooed by Berman because <laughs> because of the budget. I think they got poo pooed because they looked awful. But um, it's that that's the thing, isn't it? We've got we've got a budget here, and 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 the less we spend on the making of the film, including the recycling of footage. And I knew that. I knew that as a kid watching it for the first time, mm-hmm. I could spot that that was the same bird of prey explosion and the same uh, uh, shots of it blowing up as the undiscovered country. I knew that straight away. Um, and in a way, I mean, it doesn't detract from the film at all, so it doesn't matter. Um, but it is interesting where the money then gets spent. Mm-hmm. That's the big question. We know, again, historically from Star Trek, it's not on actor salaries Mm -hmm. so you know so where is this money going and it will be into moments like that the enterprise source of that entire uh still a largely practical vfx not vfx a practical effects shot i mean that is it takes time it takes money it takes people it takes a crew Mm -hmm. um to pull that kind of shot off but you can see where um, maybe David Carson, but I don't think the director himself, but certainly the producers above have gone. All right, where have we got money for this? How can we? How yeah. can we actually put this whole thing together? And I think they were shaving money. I mean, I think they originally had a more extensive uh, use of locations they wanted to go to, and so on. And they did scale back. I think they saved about five million off the mm. original budget by by making changes uh, of various kinds of the script and so on. I don't feel that it ever feels 
you're right, they reuse stuff. They reuse some old props. They reuse a lot of sets, obviously, etc. Star Trek kind of always done that. It doesn't ever feel cheap to me. If you look at, say, Star Trek V, which feels a bit like a knockoff in, in some respects, you can see you can see the budgetary <laughs> savings going going on there. And actually, although they reuse that Bird of Prey shot, it, it's it's quite quick. It, it really doesn't register. It doesn't look like it doesn't fit. And actually, the interiors again the explosion within the bird of prey is very well done there's a lot of fire there's people being like sucked off frame which is quite interesting you don't really see them being sucked off in space but you get a sense of that going on there's a lot of action in that space that set looks fantastic it looks a million times better than it's ever looked you know in in star trek 3 or you know in star trek 4 you know it's basically the same set but they again they made it look much much better uh, or even than it ever looks in DS9, where they basically yeah. use that same set again yeah. and again. Um, they do really make the most, I think, of everything that's in there. And absolutely, they make the most... I mean, one of the best decisions, I think, that was taken was... I mean, I, you, you said they don't pay the actors a lot. I don't know what they paid um, this Academy-nominated cinematographer, maybe a bit more than they would have paid someone else, but I think... It, it works. Do you know what I mean? Like you can tell someone really good has has visually styled this film. It's absolutely beautiful. It's very interesting visually, I think, compared to next gen. I mean, you know, we're talking about these sort of adult themes of like loss and grief and so on. It's incredibly dark visually, mm. and I suppose partly that's the transition from a TV set in the corner in a lit room where you need to be able to see everything. It's all bright and clear and so on, and the lighting is all quite flat. To a cinema where you're in complete darkness, and it feels like a film that is is. Uh, designed for a cinema experience rather than kind of home. I mean, I watched it on my iPad. I feel like that's not the way. So it's probably better Definitely in your living not. room. On the yeah, 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 totally. Stuff. Because um, <laughs> it, you know, just the lighting it is is quite dark. It's quite interesting. You know, they make the most of that uh, sort of sunset effect on the ship where you've got the kind of big dark shadows coming in. Uh, you know, because you've got this kind of... Sun- I mean, so much of the film feels like it's taking place in, at sunset or kind of twilight. You've mm. got this uh, Guinan's room, which is all lit by candlelight. Uh, you, you've got even, like, the Klingon ship is pretty dark and, and, and shady. And even, like, incidental sets, almost like, say, Data's quarters, it's all, like, accent lighting, no kind of big overhead lighting. Everything is lit with these kind of minute little lights uh, around a set really kind of lots of shadows everywhere and then by the end of the film you get this effect where literally when it, it, it almost feels like it all comes together because when Soren launches that thing and destroys the star you get an instant eclipse and suddenly again you're plunged into sunset basically and kind of twilight and that kind of dark um, quality and you get these beautiful visuals I mean that place where they filmed Fire Valley something like that mm-hmm. Valley of Fire I think mm-hmm. State Park um, stunning anyway you, you know this kind of otherworldly landscape um but suddenly they have an excuse to kind of shoot in that kind of do they call it the golden period you know that kind that kind of golden hour golden hour exactly uh absolutely beautiful but you know both when soren is being taken away and then at the end of the film with kirk's you know picard's sort of mourning kirk's loss and so Mm. on again you get that lighting and it it ties totally in with the visual look of the entire film, which is very warm and is very kind of sunsetty, almost these kind of orange mm. hues to everything. Very different to anything you see on Next Gen. Uh, the only thing I can think of in Star Trek that gets close to it is there's that episode of Enterprise, uh, directed by Livar Burson, where they kind of pull the same trick with the sun and they, they have some beautiful shots with kind of uh, sort of sunsetty effect. But I mean, it totally defines the kind of visual look of this film, I think. Um, and again, 
very cinematic, very much not the kind of pale, uh, you know, people always talk about Next Gen as the Hilton in space, that kind of, you know, comfortable, well-lit look. It's a very much darker, much more shadow, much more interesting interplay of light and dark. Even Kirk in the um, deflector control room, you know, really dark scene his these patterns playing across his face the whole time the ice linear chips kind of casting all these different colors on him um picard on the merry-go-round there's these weird um colored lights from the kind of out of focus baubles you know the christmas tree lights um these kind of decorations you get all these kind of interesting uses of um lens flares actually you know years before jj abrams came in when they've got their palm torches out and they're yeah. going into the station in the dark lens flares galore all yeah. over the screen uh you know because again it's dark and you're seeing little patches of light and patches of light here and there but the kind of environment of the film is generally pretty dark and it's weird because we think of first contact as the next generation going dark but actually and then no. insurrection as the opposite yeah you know pulling things back into the tv kind of aesthetic this film is incredibly dark absolutely and uh, as you say the uniforms lend themselves to that mm. If we go, if we go coloured stripe, yeah, and black top, then we've got much less in the design sense, in the kind of aesthetic to to, to kind of light us. Mm. There's nothing bouncing off the top. It's and it emphasises the face as well. Absolutely, like and that. and 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 the film, the whole film. I always think about that um, that scene. Uh, I, I agree with you as well. Incidentally, it's the best Troy Picard scene mm. there ever was. She does scene. good counselling, you know. In that she scene, speaks the yes, truth. She, yes, she's, yeah, yeah. You know, she's there for him. She knows what's going on. She knows. She says the right thing. She intuits. I mean, you know, we do. We know she's kind of empathic, vaguely telepathic, whatever that that means. She does get what's going, what's playing on his mind. Absolutely. In, in that way that you think, okay, this is why it would be good to have a counsellor who has like superpowers because she can hit the Pick nail on up. the head. And he, mm. he he says, yes, that's it. That's exactly you know, as if he hasn't quite. Put the join the dots himself. Um, the way the scene is shot—that's what it's about. It's mm. about the uh, and and positioning themselves by the Amagosa star as it's about to go nova or is close to going nova mm. is what gives them that light. Mm. It's fantastic. It's absolutely beautiful. It is not the show. No, it's not Star Trek. That's no. the weird thing. It's totally not Star Trek. Um, even D- I mean, it, DS9 is the closest to that. They they get a bit more, and you do have that kind of accent lighting and the kind of yeah. slightly different lighting uh, on DS9. But absolutely, it's, when you think of Star Trek, you think brightly lit to the extent that even when J.J. Abrams reimagines Star Trek, Same it becomes deal. the Apple Store. It becomes yeah. you know totally white, bright, everything yeah. you know, and that's what we think of as Star Trek. We do not think of these kind of shadowy, murky, dark scenes uh, where you need a torch to see what's going on. Mm. But they did it, they did it, and they did it then. And, uh, yeah, that scene I always remember as the one that was lit. Uh, you know, Troy mm. at one end of the room and Picard at the other, and it's quite dark in between them. And, you know, what's actually going on here? And she's almost dimly lit at the end of the room. You can't really see her. She's there. I don't know. I thought it was absolutely wonderful the mm. way it was shot. Uh, really, really well considered. Uh, and from a director who'd done long time stuff on the next gen, which I thought was really cool, uh, quite necessary, actually. As we discussed in our last podcast, having a director who knows the characters and knows the show is a really important uh, aspect. And I think uh, I think David Carson himself was surprised when they asked him to do the film, mm-hmm. but I think that it shows 
that there's someone there who knows the characters, who knows the material, and knows the universe, mm. um, i.e. not Stuart Baird. Yeah. Um. <laughs> and, I mean, incomparably more successful than Baird. I think. I mean, I know a lot of people feel like Jonathan Frakes was the kind of, you know, with First Contact, that was the ideal director, maybe. But I think, you know, Carson, I would say, does a great job as a director. The, the, I mean, the only area where I feel slightly uncertain about this film, I suppose, is around the... I was going to say the pacing. I don't know if... It, I think it's a mixture of pacing and structure, and maybe the editing, actually. One of the se- segments that doesn't quite work for me, although, as I say, the crash itself is incredibly effective, is that you're cutting back and forth between that and Picard and Soren on the planet. And I feel like there's a slight expectation that, like, we've got this beautiful scenery, we've got these two fantastic British actors chewing the... attempting to chew this magnificent scenery, uh, and that's going to somehow be enough. But actually, what I felt is that the energy always falls slightly flat when you get back to Picard and Soren. And it's a shame because I, I do like, you know, obviously it goes without saying Patrick Stewart's brilliant. I think Malcolm McDowell is good in this film. I think he's a good villain. I think it, it sort of works. I think their dynamic works. But I think trying to cut back and forth between their conversations, which are not massively dramatic, and this huge action spectacle is a big mistake. I mean, that's presumably comes down to the script and the, and the way it's put together. But I, I feel like that, is an issue. And I do feel the pacing of the film slows down a lot just as you, and the structure of it is weird because you've kind of got, you've built towards this confrontation between Picard and Soren, which you would think would be the kind of third act climax of the film. It actually comes about halfway through the film and doesn't really go anywhere. And then you have this big detour where Picard has to go and get Kirk and then kind of replay it all and and do it all again. And then you have this whole issue about does the ending work and they had to reshoot it and so on. and, And why is, you know, for me, the sort of stuff, the interactions in the Nexus between Kirk and Picard work quite well as character stuff. But there is a slight sense. It feels a little bit like Kirk's just Picard's plus one uh, back to this party that he that he wasn't, you know, that didn't work out the first time. Do you know what I mean? And it could have been anyone. It doesn't feel like that. Maybe part of the problem with that climax is it doesn't really play to either Picard or Kirk's strengths. They, they're both okay in a fight. I mean, obviously, we know Kirk was great in a fight once upon a time, but probably not so much now. Mm. Uh, it it almost could have been anyone on that bridge performing that role. And I do feel like that maybe is a slight failing of the film, that it doesn't, it doesn't justify, you know, why is it Kirk and why is it Picard in this situation? And what do you, you know, because this is a big question the film sort of has to answer. If you get Kirk plus Picard, what does that equal? What does that equal? Because that yeah. should be something pretty darn yeah, big and special, right? Yeah. They should be absolutely, you know, as much as we might say, you know, Kirk and Spock complement each other or, you, you know, these kind of, mm. or Kirk, Spock and McCoy complement, you know, these kind of ideas of, again, sort of what is something bigger than the sum of its parts? I guess you get it, you know, um, it's all this stuff these days. There was that meme, wasn't there, about the greatest crossover event in, in history or whatever. Oh, with and the Avengers. Know, exactly. And yeah, you, yeah. With the Avengers, you've got this thing of like, how do you bring all these characters together and make them bigger than the sum of their parts? You get it a lot these days, you know, with other kind of TV franchises and so on of, of I, doing these kind of crossovers. I loved those. This was the, not the original, but this, this it was, was a big crossover. Be, yeah. Know, the biggest crossover event in, in Star Trek history. Yeah. Um, much more, I mean, obviously Star Trek's done other ones, you know, we had Bones in the first episode of Next Gen, we, you know, we've had other characters, we've had Sulu in Voyager and so on, but this is the big... This is the one, These yeah. are the two big, ca- you know, uh, as 
as much as you've got Captain Janeway here on your desk. Yeah. But, you, you know, <laughs> for years, anyway, it was always who's the better captain, Kirk or Picard? And those yeah, were the two absolutely. choices. Um, and the idea of putting them together, although Bran and Braga apparently originally wanted them to fight each other, he, he, he said his original concept for this film was just an image of Kirk's Enterprise and Picard's Enterprise shooting at each other. Now, clearly that wouldn't work because... Picard's Enterprise would just blow the other one up, right? Like that—that's common sense. But, but the idea yeah. of the two of them at loggerheads fighting each other, which I think you do get—I'm not—I haven't watched all the Marvel films, but you do get that to some extent in, in some of them. I think don't you conflict between these characters? Yeah, you who do. Are heroes in their own films and in their own rights. They obviously didn't feel they could go down that route, which I think is understandable. But I don't think they really ever answer that question of Kirk plus Picard equals. What, what exactly yeah. it seems like it's just one extra person so that you can surround you can have one on either side of Soren and even then he you know How kind high of beats the, the proverbial out of both of them to yes extent, that's right you know. yeah um, it is really interesting isn't it and I think um, yeah I always enjoyed those memes about um, the, the you know this is the most ambitious crossover ever I did see one that you'll appreciate of um uh, Sooty and Sweep and uh, the cast of Rainbow. Exactly. That there said, you, go. <laughs> said, you know, everyone's saying Marvel's the most ambitious yeah. TV crossover, but they've forgotten yeah. that this one, yeah. these two shows <laughs> once combined. And, yeah. and so, um, I suppose for guys working now in, in, uh, in Marvel and guys working now, now in Star Trek as well, uh, are feeling, um, I would say confined mm-hmm. by, the need to make sure that everything crosses over and that everything makes narrative sense across a much larger franchise mm. than one film. Uh, and I do, ag- but how, having said that, I do agree with you that this is completely underplayed. Kirk plus Picard, you know, where the, the stakes are relatively high, but they're not very high in compa- comparison to stuff that maybe Kirk did on his own and Picard did on his own. Do you know, because it's only a random 280 million people that we never see. That's right. I mean, there is, there is an argument that they, the fact that we never, literally never even see them, because I feel like Star Trek can do that, films can do that. It's weird that we don't even see them kind of looking up at the sky and kind of yeah. thinking, oh, what's yes, that thing that's totally. about to what's kill that? us all? You know, yeah. these pre-industrial people. We don't, we don't ever get any link to them. And I always forget when I watch this film, Although it, it makes sense that because you you think okay there's that crash sequence you think oh great you know Troy saved everyone you know <laughs> the, the crash was was well done insofar as no one died on the ship and then they all get obliterated in this like half second shot which is pretty shocking because you see the saucer being ripped apart with people mm. standing on top of it and you know not that you can see the bodies flying up or whatever but you you kind of get that you know it's a bit like seeing a building coming down with mm. people in it or something um, and obviously then it never happens ultimately but it, it did happen in the yeah. same sense as you know we've seen the enterprise blow up and then it never happened in the past um but yeah i suppose arguably well kirk obviously has saved earth in the past picard is certainly going to save earth in the next movie uh and in the fourth you know in two of it in two of his four movies he's going to end up saving earth one way or another i mean maybe that is part of it I don't know if it is so much about the stakes I mean you could argue also that Soren as much as I think Malcolm McDowell is is good and is well cast and so on is there something 
he's not quite what you'd expect. If you're thinking of a, a Star Trek villain as kind of like a Bond villain, he doesn't seek power. I mean, Guinan mm. says, you know, he doesn't, he's not interested in weapons, he's not interested in power, he just has this one thing that he wants and he doesn't care what happens in order to get it. I feel like that's, I quite like that, at yeah. least in principle. I think on paper that sounds good. I do sort of wonder whether, is that part of the reason that it, something feels a little bit small in the third act because mm. he's not, Although it's Malcolm McDowell and he's kind of crazy and scary and, you know, we've seen a cockroach, but we've seen Malcolm McDowell can do, like, psycho scary stuff. Um, actually, what he wants... I mean, he's quite sympathetic, which is good, I yeah. think, you know, because you can understand why he wants it. Um, but his ambitions are fairly... His ambition is actually fairly minimal. It's just the cost that it's going to involve to get there. And you do sort of wonder, could he not have just done a few more supernovas and found a planet there wasn't anyone living in that system and you know then no one would care yes, <laughs> but, that's right. know, yeah, yeah, yeah. but we have to buy he's been spent 80 years working on this plan and this is the only way he's going to do it and he's, he's you know rationalized it and decided it's okay um i don't know i, I think for me that is that, that if there is a flaw with this film uh well there are i think there are flaws with this film as i say i don't think the data stuff really works and i think that just as a story the third act is where it struggles a bit mm. Um, and I think it's interesting. They they shot it, they screened it, they reshot it. Did they ever quite get it right? I suppose that's the question. Uh, no, I'm not sure they did. Um, for a variety of reasons. I, I again, I, I again, this is me saying I respect the film hugely and find it incredibly rewatchable, mm-hmm. uh, more so than either Insurrection or uh, Nemesis. Uh, I think it does a great job mm-hmm. of what it's trying to do. Um, but no, um, Kurt, as you say, what are the stakes here? Kirk plus Picard equals, and it should have been huge. Mm. Uh, we've seen bigger stuff come afterwards. Mm. We've seen DS9 do the Dominion War. We've seen Discovery try and kind of reboot and, and look at a kind of the Klingon War that we knew had happened but didn't know anything about. And the stakes in all those things are huge. Um, and surely, if you're going to bring together these two iconic characters, um, the stakes need to be that big. And for want of sounding absolutely awful, really, but, you know, 280 million on, 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 <laughs> on, on one planet. Who, do they die? Or do they just kind of end up in the Nexus? Nexus? In which case, in which case in, what the hell know? are we doing? You know? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've just taken the Enterprise crew yeah. and 280 million happy Viridians out of the Nexus. I don't think they do uh, end up in the Nexus because I think, I don't think the Enterprise crew end up in the Nexus because if you, the, the way it, what you see the ribbon go past Picard and Soren and they vanish and you actually, you, you know, and then you see the, the landscape is still there and they're not there. It takes them somewhere else. It takes, yeah. It's like Guinness is a portal to somewhere else. Now you don't see the ribbon. The ribbon is on, they're on the other side of the planet, I guess. Yeah. To, yeah, to yeah. Get a crashed ship yeah. And the ribbon is not, I mean, he has to climb up his platform that he's built as well as bringing it near enough in order to, well, he, he doesn't because Picard gets it and he's a bit lower down. Who knows? But you know, I think we have to accept <laughs> they're on the wrong, the, the enterprise crew are on the wrong side of the planet. They just get blown up. Yes. Um, they don't get whisked Through away. Through the supernova. Beforehand. The, exactly. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and the Viridians, uh, sadly, same their industrial civilization gets flattened at yeah, the same time. Absolutely. So it, they're, it, but then it's almost this kind of flaw that we get with the next gen movies and you get it again with insurrection where Picard is making kind of moral point, but it feels slightly abstract. 
at least in cinematic terms, it doesn't feel quite emotionally connected enough. And I know a lot of people, I mean, not to get diverted into a whole debate about insurrection, but I think a lot of people felt with insurrection the problem was that while in principle you might agree with Picard, his argument there seems a little bit kind of rational and a bit sort of un, un, untethered to anything emotionally resonant. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Partly maybe because the people in that film seem fairly laid back and, and chilled about everything anyway, uh, and partly just because of the way that that argument he has with the Admiral in that scene plays out. And in some ways it's quite similar to the argument he has with Soren in this film, where he's sort of saying, you know what you're doing is wrong, you're going to kill all these people, you know, your people were killed by the Borg, you know, you know this is wrong, and Soren's like, yeah, I don't care, I don't care, I'm not interested. And really, Picard can't win that argument, that's the weird thing, and Picard is, you know, is the guy who makes great arguments, I mean, in all good things, there's that great scene although psychologically I don't really buy it, I buy it totally dramatically, where he has to convince the crew of the Enterprise who never met him before to go on what is clearly yes. a, a mad suicide mission for a captain who's making no sense whatsoever. And he gives this great impassioned speech and says, you're going to have to trust me, I will need a leap of faith. And they all, you know, sign up and go, yeah. Uh, we don't get that because actually Picard is not able to convince these people in the movies because in the movies it's necessary to, you know, blow stuff up and, and, and kill people uh, in order to get what you need, yeah. get what you want. And somehow maybe there's something slightly underpowered and underplayed. Again, even between these two great, you know, English actors, there's, there's still something slightly underplayed about that because it's kind of, again, this kind of moral argument about something, about these other people on a planet that is over there somewhere and we literally, we never see them and we only understand about the stakes affecting them kind of in theory because we watch the, the demonstration in that beautiful new set which actually you're talking about like spending the money that is one set they did build from scratch yes, totally. and it was the yeah, biggest yeah. set they'd ever built yeah. uh, and apparently it was not in the script in the script it just said a, a, an office with some screens on the walls and it was Herman Zimmerman who looked at it and he was like no I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to build something for this film. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, I'm, going to, yeah. I'm going to go to town on this one, and it's going to be the biggest set you've ever seen. It's going to be wrap around. It's going to have this thing. Uh, it's quite a funny interview with Patrick Stewart on one of the special features for Generations, saying he was actually quite um, basically suffering vertigo in that set, and he said it reminded him of being a kid and going out on the like high diving board, mm. and all his friends goading him to jump in the pool. He was just standing there terrified because it was this huge uh, thing, unlike anything we saw in next gen that, mm. I mean, but I think that was another thing of like show I don't know what it cost them but like showing this is the cinema we're going to do something a little bit big and a little bit yeah. special um, you know and I, and I would say that again that see it worked insofar as that set is one of the things that you remember from the film but I think it's interesting this question of like what what is the role of uh, when you go from the TV straight to the big screen bridging that gap I and mean, when we talked a bit about how the film is very cinematic um it does, interestingly, that very final scene with Picard and Riker on the bridge of the Enterprise D has a moment where it feels like it, 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 it's a finale. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because they're yeah, saying yeah. goodbye to that ship and obviously they didn't say goodbye. To the, they said goodbye, they, they sort of wrapped a lot of stuff up emotionally uh, and intellect, you know, and kind of thematically and mm. plot-wise and so on in all good things. But they still have that scene where they're basically saying, right, this is the last time we're going to see this ship. Um, and, you know kind of have to accept that and move on and the future is going to be different and so on and that that, that to me is weird because that feels like a scene from a a, se a series finale somehow yeah, yeah. that somehow got dropped into this film and it's the final beat 
of the film as well. So it carries a lot of kind of weight. But I'm kind of curious, what do you think about, I mean, there are a lot of other TV properties that have done this. I mean, the X-Files was doing it just Mm -hmm. a couple of years after this one and had some of the same challenges in that they were writing, well, worse challenges in some ways in that they were writing for a film that had to fit within a a much more complex continuity than Star Trek has ever had, certainly up to this point. Um, and also go from the TV series into the film and then back into the TV series and yeah. somehow make the film stand alone and be different and cinematic, but also fit as an episode so you could watch it kind of within that run. Um, and other shows obviously have done similar things. I mean, I, one of my favorites was the South Park movie. I love that movie. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Bigger, longer and uncut. <laughs> and they, and there they got away with, they got away with like a lot of swearing, a lot of stuff that they couldn't do, I think on the TV, on TV they, they pushed yeah. massively in the cinema and that was watching that I was blown away not so much like the crash in generation but I was like wow they're really going there and they're doing that and they're you know they can do all of this and it made me think think South Park is a series that was quite um, risque and, and pushing things you suddenly in the cinema you're like okay they've got a 15 certificate whatever they can do whatever the hell they, they like do what and they it like. shows yeah. um, but you do you know you do get a lot of uh, Sex and the City did a big sort of spectacular yeah sure them, yeah. you know ramp everything up get the helicopters out you know try and, and bling up the, the whole thing but still focus on these characters but in a British context you've also got you know on the buses you've yeah. got uh, <laughs> do you know what I mean all these uh, Alan Partridge, <laughs> Alan Partridge did, yes, I mean Alan Partridge one, yeah, great because yeah. he actually did a kind of action movie uh, which I think was kind of inspired uh, of you know kind of blending that almost a sort of meta commentary on the fact that they're doing a big film yeah. uh, out of this rather small Property. character yeah, yeah. And, and so on but um, quite a lot of British comedies Kevin and Perry go large, you know, yes, often not yeah, with yeah. huge success, but anything that's popular enough. And of course, uh, it's not quite out in the cinemas yet as we're recording, but it might be by the time this episode drops. Downton Abbey, hugely, yeah. massively anticipated movie, um, you know, for fans of that TV show. And I don't know what you do there because that TV show was so, so much of the charm of that TV show was like how gorgeous it looked and how beautifully it was shot and this amazing building that they were filming in and the production value you know the production value and the sort of throwing the money at the screen was a big part of the charm of that show i don't know what you do to top that for for cinema necessarily but also we've had you know we had the uh, a breaking bad movie coming it out it's coming out i think only on netflix not in the cinema we That's had correct. the deadwood yeah. movie uh, which, deadwood, yeah, which was in the cinema right no. was that, oh was it not no, oh, okay never went to cinema i thought it, okay. um and i suppose so there's a there's, God, there's lots to say about that. But so, so let's let's try and break it down. But one of the things to comment on is the difference between um, having to go for a cinematic movie, mm-hmm. as in it's going to be launched in the cinema, and having to go for what you would call a TV movie, mm-hmm. as in it's feature length, but we're only expecting it to air on TV and have people. So kind of, you know, renewing or keeping our TV audience. There is a different expectation there. So the X-Files movie, to go back in time, was uh, shot between seasons four and five of the X-Files, but actually chronologically took place between seasons five and six. And that put an immense stress on the production team who are used to doing a TV show, uh, not even used to doing a TV mm. show, they are still doing a TV mm-hmm. show. But, you know, let's add to your plate, you're also going to do a feature film in the hiatus. So the TV show's off, and while a normal feature film might expect 
four to six months of pre-production. The X-Files had six weeks. Wow. Hmm. To get it going. And this changes the dynamic. So TV has a pace. TV has, and we've said this, Generations as a film is a really good example of what happens when you change that pace and when you change that aesthetic and when you change that dynamic. And that's good. But with the X-Files movie, to take this kind of, I suppose, almost contemporary example for, for, for Star Trek, is what happens. Well, you know, we've got Mulder and Scully uh, running around and uh, there's lots of big scenes. It's darker. It's certainly got a cinematic look for sure, but then I would argue the X-Files TV series always had a cinematic look, you know? Mm. It was always shot incredibly well. It was always lit incredibly well. So what is the cinema, what is the cinematic bringing to it? And um, I know that, that Chris Carter, the creator of the X-Files, wanted to end the series at series five mm-hmm. and then do a series of movies to kind of round it off. And the and, and Fox said no, because of course it was a huge moneymaker and we know that because it, it did nine seasons in the end uh, and then a, a somewhat lacklustre later movie, um, which we shouldn't really talk about. You know, I, not to get too into a digression about the X-Files, but I love that second movie. I'm really? Gonna, I think that second movie is ten times better than the first one. Yeah. And actually, I've only seen it twice. I saw it once in the cinema, and I loved it. And I saw it once when I rewatched the whole of the X-Files a couple of years ago. And again, I loved it. I thought it was brilliant. It was completely what I wanted from an X-Files movie in the way that the first one wasn't. But, you know, and, and it's almost like, I mean, people always say, oh, Insurrection feels like a two-part, feels like a TV movie, basically. Mm-hmm. Some people like that about it. Some people feel disappointed about it. I mean, I feel that's, to me, that's a bad thing because I was only getting a Star Trek movie every few years. I kind of wanted a bit more than that. I love that second X-Files movie because it feels like a TV movie of the X-Files. Yeah. And and it has a lot of the stuff that I loved about the X-Files. And that first one is just kind of a bit take it or leave it. You know, God, it feels like first... an action movie. It just yeah, it feels I, like uh... a more generic movie to me. I did it recently, again, talking about Megan and I re-watching Star Trek, mm. while well, Megan and I also tackled the X-Files, and, and most recently the X-Files movie is is what we did before then going back into the TV show quite recently, and it feels incredibly odd. I, You know, what is this film trying to achieve? And then actually by the time you get into the kind of sci-fi specifics, mm. you know, the show had been hinting at this idea of alien colonisation. The show had been going in this direction. And then by the time the movie took hold of it, you were watching a sort of bastardized version of uh, Alien. Mm. What the hell is this? You know, we're giving birth. We're birthing aliens. Really? Mm. Really? We're going to go here? And you don't think you're being even slightly derivative of what I consider to be a sci-fi masterpiece? Um, (laughs) It's odd. Really Mm. odd. And then when it comes back in its sixth season while me and you were discussing before that actually some of those episodes are some of their best are done in the sixth season. Um, also they've got to deal with this weird, we're birthing aliens plot. Mm-hmm. They've got to deal with it because they did it in the movie, mm. but the movie was shot between seasons four and five and then it is season five. And then they've got six and that the whole thing feels quite messy. And it's in much that more regard. of a conundrum that, I mean, with Star Trek, it was a lot easier insofar as they could... Okay, they knew they were going to 
crash the ship in generations. So that's going to kind of bring a, an end. So I suppose that's the weird thing is it's almost because it's being, you know, it was written before all good things. I mean, and they, and they, they've talked about this, uh, Braga and more. They had a year. They worked for a year on Generations and they worked for a month on All Good Things. And yet many people would say that they wrote a better script for All Good Things than they wrote for Generations, you know, you know in 12 times as long. Um, but also, I suppose they, in some ways, there is that weird sense that Generations is the end of the next generation era insofar as when they come back for the next film, everything, the look is different, the uniform's different, the ship's different, everything is kind of new again in, in some way. Um, so they knew... But at the same time, they had a lot of freedom. They, they didn't have to slot it in in that way. All, all they knew was that the starting point of it was basically the same as ever in Next Gen. Um, and that that meant that when they did end up writing the last episode of Next Gen, they had to go off into the sunset and nothing, you know, re- it ends. You, you know, yes, it wraps up those seven years, but at the same time, it's on to the next mission the next week. And we can imagine what happened in the, I don't know what it is meant to be like less than a year, I think between mm. these two episodes, six months or something, but you know, they had other adventures and other things happened and you know, who knows, read the novels, you know, yeah, yeah. Comics, <laughs> whatever, etc. But they did have that kind of, um, it's, it's much less of a challenge. I think that they were facing that the, the X-Files was absolutely a, a head scratcher and is, and, and maybe played one way if you were going to the cinema and having this popcorn extravaganza and then going home and forgetting about it for a few months. If you go and you watch through like you're doing and you watch the episode before the movie and then you watch the movie and then you watch the episode after the movie, it's a bit no puzzling. Way. It doesn't feel like Not it. Not at all. It doesn't fit quite as well. And I suppose that's one of the things, and one of the dangers with these movies as well when they come in later, because often, often they come in after a series has fit, like a few years later, like the Deadwood one i guess is a deep you know not not it's not the motion picture for star trek but it's kind of you know it's a few years and it's after people think that story is finished and again breaking bad i think a lot of people were taken by surprise by that they were like we thought we were done with breaking bad you know i know we've got better call saul and so yeah, on, yeah. But we were not expecting a breaking bad movie um oh. and that is a real risk i suppose if you've closed the book on that story whereas with next gen it was an intention, you, you know, it was, it was planned. And really they stood, the reason they stopped, it's not like next gen was canceled. They stopped making the TV show in order to switch to making movies. If you know what I mean, they, they didn't have the idea that the X-Files had of doing them both and flipping back and forth. They were like, okay, we'll run this for one more year. That will give us time to prep the movie. Then we'll go into making movies every few years. And the next gen cast will do what the original series cast did. And they sort of had a model, I suppose, for what they were aiming for, you know, a movie every couple of years and so on. And a plan for that. But they did end up filming, you know, literally overlapping filming, you, you know, James doing, you know, the, the original series crew filming on one stage and the um, next gen crew filming next door, you, you know, um, wrapping up the TV show while they're starting work on the film and managing to kind of uh, do that transition. I, I suppose it, maybe what it comes down to though is do the, I mean, we talked, I suppose we talked a bit about how the kind of hero's journey stuff with Picard maybe isn't always to the movie's strength though i sort of feel like it it sort of mostly works i think most of the kind of more cinematic gestures the movie makes work quite well maybe with the x-files i don't i didn't i don't hate that first movie but like i don't think it's a brilliant brilliant either as a film or as an episode of the x-files it felt to me like it was pushing it in slightly broader obvious direct you know sort of crowd pleasing directions mm. that didn't quite work. Whereas I actually don't really feel that this 
movie that Generations particularly is doing that. I think the flaws in it are weird quirks of the way it's structured and the kind of it actually come out of the kind of quirkiness of it in some ways rather than the mainstream stuff of it the the, mm. the kind of cinematic gestures are quite artistic and quite creative yeah. and quite effective i think but i guess one of the other things to think about is you know right now i mean we've had for years this divorce between cbs and um viacom so paramount and cbs being on kind of opposite sides this distinction between tv trek and uh movie tracks so you've had the jj films in the in the movie you know they had to sort of reinvent all of that you've had with discovery this idea and all these kind of weird arguments about you know are they allowed to borrow design things and, and this kind of the fantasy Calvin, about this 25 yes, yeah. rule and so on and all, all this kind of nonsense that's come out of this separation of these properties and the and rules now, associated with them now of course they're back together we could see a pike movie we could see as people have been saying for years why did we never get a DS9 movie? Yeah, right. You know, who knows? If, yeah, if yeah. there's enough interest there and Star Trek is on enough of a kind of high, we might start getting, whether they're TV, you know, Netflix movies, whether they're actual cinema movies, however it goes, there is sort of scope for Star Trek to start bridging that gap a little bit more. Um, you know, I, for my money, say Pike, I don't really want to see a Pike I loved Pike in Discovery Season 2. I thought he was great. I have no real interest in seeing a Pike TV series. A Pike movie... I would be a bit more like a one-off, probably a TV movie. There was the idea of them doing a, a mini-series on Khan, wasn't there? I don't know if that ever came. Yeah, to I, that but like seemed to disappear. Different, but, different yeah. being more playful with different kind of models of storytelling. Whether that's you know a theatrical release movie, whether that's a kind of TV movie, whether that's a TV mini-series, it's kind of exciting, I suppose, the idea that Star Trek is now in a position where everything is all under one, um, you know, kind of corporate overlord yes that's uh, right and therefore there is the scope to in some ways be a little bit more experimental with those kind of things i mean it's essential to remember as you say corporate overlord but it's essential to remember that these stories only ever get told because someone somewhere thinks they're going to make money mm-hmm. um it's sad to think that but it's also the reality that these are the only reasons that Star Trek ended up in the cinema in the first place was because mm-hmm. of the success of Star Wars. Okay, well, if that can do it, we can certainly do it. The motion picture with mixed success and reception. And then Khan changing the format uh, and doing, as you said, changing the direction of Kirk as a character and, and actually being able to stand alone in the cinema and justify its existence, I believe, until Star Trek V, when it became slightly problematic. But um, that's another podcast entirely. But um, when... So what are the expectations of the executive and the studio when they're saying, okay, we want to make... So when we say different forms of storytelling, we've got to be quite precise, because if it's going to be a cinematic release, there are going to be certain expectations about what that is going to return Mm-hmm. to the studio and what that's going to return you know and again you can see this this is not blind if you watch the uh chaos on the bridge next generation documentary it's very clear there are people here talking about million dollar deals multi-million dollar deals indeed we're not doing it so we're not you know i like to focus on story and i like to focus on character that's what i think it's all about and indeed i'll go on to that in just a second but it is important to say that while these uh kind of big studios have come back together which presents a new potential i read an article the other day that said oh well the new the new rival for marvel is star trek right because 
suddenly we can do TV, we can do film, we can do it all together, we can make it all join up, mm. we can make it all uh, make sense together. And this kind of big meta narrative in a way that hasn't been done in. We can have the crossover event of a generation. Yes, we can. Yes, and it won't <laughs> really find out. You know, really maybe, find maybe, out. Who knows? William Chapman says he wants to come back. He maybe does we'll get the for two Tarantino's again, film. So, you know. <laughs> uh, and wouldn't that be <laughs> really fantastic? I don't know how they would do it. Uh, there's part of me that would love it, and certainly a part of me that would go, "What the are you doing here?" Yeah. Um, but I think. What's more interesting to look at, other than the kind of financial motivations, is what are we doing with story Mm. and what are we doing with character? And I suppose where Generations falls flat is where Deadwood really worked. And Deadwood had a genuine 10-year, 12-year gap, actually, between the unexpected cancellation of their series Mm -hmm. and let's do a movie and they talked about doing a movie straight away we want to do a movie now we want to close this series Mm. for all its fans and it's very high quality television i think it's one of the best television series ever um and you got that with firefly obviously yes they did that they got cancelled they managed to make a movie pretty soon like within a couple of years partly crowdfunded right was it yes Mm. so Yes, so that's an incredible. Uh, again, uh, when I was talking about this with, uh, I live with my brother, and so my, my my wife, and my brother, we're having this discussion. I'm going to do this podcast. Mm. They both said Firefly, mm. and I actually said it doesn't quite do the same thing because it was only a one season wonder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're not well, the legacy. Season, isn't it? it's, oh, I mean, it's even a yeah, yeah. It's, it's a half season. It's and I don't get me wrong, I absolutely adore it. This is not me critiquing it, but mm. if you're talking about what Star Trek had to do or what the X-Files had to do or mm. what Deadwood had to do, we're not in the same ballpark. We're just not. I, I Again, doesn't change my respect for Firefly and Serenity, but it, it does mean we're talking about very different properties and very different franchises. And Deadwood, for me, was an exceptional TV show that I don't think closed on a note that meant I had to see more. Mm-hmm. But to hear they were going to come back and do more that they had always wanted to. But again, it's financial, right? So why are we coming back? Why is Deadwood finally coming back? And the answer is because HBO is making Westworld, which meant they had a set for Deadwood. Oh, right, okay. It's all there. Mm -hmm. So Deadwood, the kind of 12, 10 years later in in Mm -hmm. in the story of Deadwood, 10 years later town is the set of Westworld. How weird. I didn't realise that. No, but that's but that's how they're able to financially justify it. Uh-huh. Because you can't strike the set, which was all built, and then come back... And rebuild it. And rebuild it. Well, and Star Trek always had this. I mean, when they were ripping down the Enterprise D sets, they were repurposing them into Voyager. And, yes. you know, a lot of those, some of those sets had come from the original series movies. You know, mm-hmm. they'd inherited bits and pieces. And I guess you've always had that. Um and maybe that's something... I mean, I don't know. I don't think at the moment, because we've got Discovery shooting in Canada and Picard shooting in California, I don't think so far there has been any of that kind of uh, borrowing back and forth of kind of um, production, uh, you know, sort of value in, mm. in that sense or kind of, um, you know, looking for ways to kind of share the costs or whatever. But maybe as more Star Trek, you know, once they start doing this Section 31 show, although I think there's speculation that they will actually finish Discovery 
before that potentially yeah and then then that will ripple that will take the discovery slot but either way they can there's scope there for them to share resources to some extent to share sets and to kind of repurpose stuff and save save money in those kind of ways there is it was one of the biggest problems with the x-files though is that Mm. the movie was shooting in la and the show was based in vancouver yeah and then they moved the show to to la right after that did they really? Did they? Yeah, yeah. Is that, I think oh, from sixties onwards, that's why it all looks, suddenly looks a bit brighter. Ah, and indeed, I was trying to work this out the other day, and I might be completely wrong, but I was watching an episode of season six, and I thought, did they suddenly start shooting widescreen? I think it. I think so. That God, might be I'm the not, moment, but I'm not really the X Files expert. That's but, it, and nor well, am I. But that's you know. So, so take us I on think our they word. Do but, the, the framing. Stuff the framing. Well, yeah. um, I'll go back and I'll go back and look at that. But um, I, I think. Yes, there is this sharing of resources, and this is, in a way, Deadwood and the way it finished for me doing the movie and coming back ten years later. Now, interviewing the like generations, it had uh, a long-term producer and writer Mm -hmm. and director come on and do the movie, the same as The X-Files. Rob Bowman, who'd done several episodes of The X-Files, did their movie. Mm -hmm. David Carson did, you know. So... This is really important, I think, for continuity. But when you come to why, why do we need to come back to Deadwood 10 years later? So you, you, that's okay. Let's talk about that. Let's look at why we need to go back there. And the writers and producers in their interviews about it would say things like, well, actually, it's 10 years later. And what the movie is about is what time has done to these characters where are they 10 years later what's happened to them in that time what's happened to the town because it was about deadwood what's happened to the town in that time and generations for me is very interesting in that regard because exactly what we were saying for the next generation cast there is no time the fire have, in which they burn. The fire in which no they fire. burn, there's no fire. Although, yeah. having said that... Except okay, that so they start getting a bit more chubby as the, that's <laughs> as the right, movies go as on. the movies go. <laughs> you know. but, but, so we have this, uh, we have this kind of... Um, there is no time. Mm. So it doesn't resonate the same way that the original series movies does, because it can't. Mm. And you can't pick apart Picard's character for getting older mainly because he seems largely ageless Mm. Patrick Stewart but but also you can't do it the same way you did Shatner's Kirk because it isn't the same actual amount of time when Deadwood came back as a movie it had been 12 years for these actors one of the reasons the movie didn't happen you know uh, budgetary sets aside is all the actors were too busy Mm -hmm. Ian McShane Timothy Oliphant as the stars on various shows mm. and movies, and they could never make their schedules meet. But Deadwood was a huge ensemble. Mm. So what were they all doing? They had no time to come back together and pull this movie. But then someone said, I've written a script, I'm going to do it, we've got the sets. Play and they managed to pull fun. everyone except... Uh, everyone except Titus Welliver, mm-hmm. uh, who is the only actor still alive. Right who yeah. didn't come back yeah, because he was too busy right? Uh, filming Bosch. I think this is... is well, but, I mean, and of course, interestingly, you didn't get that with the next-gen movies, but we are going to get that now. 
Mm. God, aren't we? We're going to get that next year. And we are going to see an older, you know, fine. I mean, Patrick Stewart, who appears to be ageless, at least for a long time, has has finally aged. Aged, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Had to happen eventually. Yes. You know, (laughs) that that fire has caught up with him to some extent. And and he is now playing a sort of a different generation of character, I suppose. So we are going to get to see that storyline in a way that you know that i don't know if it's in any way going to be similar to what we saw with kirk and co in the original series of movies but we are going to see for picard and also for Riker and troy and anyone yeah, yeah. And, you know uh, i don't know about data because it's slightly unclear in what sense data is returning yep. in this story but certainly for those three and for seven and nine i suppose you know yes. we are going to see and, and i've seen interviews with jerry ryan saying exactly this thing you know what has seven been doing in this intervening period how has she changed as a person all those characters you know, maybe not in the slightly, arguably slightly clunky way that it was done in All Good Things. Not to knock All Good Things, because I think it's a great story, and and it's fair enough the way, you know, it's, it has to be done quite briefly there. Uh, but, you know, that episode did think, you know, okay, so what's data like in 25 years' time? What's, you know, what are these characters going to be doing, and how are they going to... It did sort of try to answer how are their personalities going to have changed and so on. The Picard show is also going to be doing that, because he's not going to be exactly the same person that he was before in the same Ooh. way as Kirk in the movies he's not the same guy as he was on the show he's mm. still there's you know it's still the same character but life has changed and time has changed them you know Oops. and I suppose it's interesting that ironically although this supposedly is a film generation a film all about time you're right it kind of exists in a bit of a, a temporal bubble um not least because it was written out of you know it was mm. written uh, in between season six and season seven of next gen so it actually on one level it is just a, a timeless episode you know one of those episodes that could be shown in any order it can't obviously because the ship it crashes at the end so it has to come at the end but you know it's very much not there's not that opportunity to sort of say even by the time of first contact or something you can kind of throw in a line or something about what they've been doing in the meantime do, do you know what i mean that there's yeah, a yeah. sense of stuff going on there's really it is just the next episode after all good things yeah and I th- but having said that, just to bring it back to maybe ways we can defend some of those creative choices mm. uh, in generations, if Deadwood came back 12, 12 years later in our time, 10 years later in the character's time, and the producers said that this show is about what time has done to our characters. Now, generations could do that for Kirk, mm-hmm. partly because it's been a very long time, mm. Couldn't do it for Picard, but in a way, by killing off his family and by taking Picard into the Nexus to see what he didn't have to present him with an alternative timeline, in a way it was addressing how these characters have been dealt with through time Mm. and what time has wrought on these characters and what time has wrought on Picard is simple. There's no family. Mm. I thought I had it. I thought it was going on elsewhere. I never made time for it. It's gone. Mm. Yeah. And so Malcolm McDowell's line, <laughs> uh, time is the fire in which we burn. Apparently he was so enamored with that. It's engraved on that pocket watch. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It genuinely. Yeah. It's from a poem. I can't remember the, the, the poet, but that's oh, where okay. it's taken from. But apparently McDowell was so taken with the line that that pocket watch that Soren has mm. in the film, it's engraved on that. Mm. Time is the fire in which we burn. And so in a in many ways, the film doesn't do what it should do, partly because, frankly, the audience hadn't missed them. Mm. <laughs> you know, we're looking for a sense of nostalgia that isn't there. 
because the show has just finished and then I'm in the cinema Mm -hmm. watching them. Don't get me wrong. When I was seven years old, that was fantastic. I'm not sorry (laughs) that that was happening. And the studio knew that. That's why they'd push a movie out straight away. But it wasn't the same as the guys who watched Kirk. And then he went off air in 69 and then they waited 10 years. And in 1979, Kirk's back. Mm. And I don't, as we discussed, we did our episode on the motion picture as well. So I don't, I don't, you know, we have our, that is also a conflicting piece. Um, by the time the Rafa Khan comes around, okay, now we're talking. Yeah. Here's our guy. It's not him. It's not our guy. Yeah, exactly. But it is him. Time has taken its toll and time is always supposed to take its toll on our characters. And so, yes, Picard coming up is, is, is all we could possibly hope for. I think, God, I'm optimistic about it, but you know, (laughs) it really is. That's exactly what generations kind of wanted to be, but couldn't be because the show had just ended. And that's a weird interplay, not one that I can quite quantify or one that you can definitely say is a thing, but it is a weird interplay between audience and the fictional worlds that they enjoy. You know, you can't, the audience for Deadwood, I watched Deadwood pretty close to when it finished. Mm-hmm. So I think it wrapped in 2006 and maybe I finished watching it in 2008 or nine. So I've been waiting a very long time to see these characters come back. And I was absolutely floored by how they decided to do it and what had happened in that town since I'd been gone mm-hmm. and they'd been gone. And you can't do that if you're running straight into a movie. Mm. You can't. So that's not Generation's fault as a story. And indeed, I think the story tries to make up for that by taking our characters, Kirk and Picard, to other times and places and giving that, you know, it's it's something that you can't, quite blame the film for the film then does the best work it can possibly do without having been gone for 10 years mm. and that's the reality without having that genuine nostalgia yes and i think you're right the film is sort of trying to manufacture nostalgia mm. in some ways particularly for both those captains about and maybe with kirk it works maybe it's also you know because kirk has become a nostalgic character and we mm. see that in the kind of prologue to the film we've seen it in all the original series films uh, Picard is not a nostalgic character, ostensibly, up until that point. And then we have to kind of buy this. And I know there's kind of, you know, people who will say, well, this actually, if you go back and you watch Next Gen, you can see this progression. And there are episodes like The Inner Light that kind of changes character. And, you know, and I, I, I do sort of buy that. I do buy that there's character development for Picard. But I suppose we don't it is almost a bit like one of those things like we, we find out about all this backstory when we need it. Cause it's going to suddenly, do you know what I mean? We find out that he's been having these thoughts because suddenly they're brought to the forefront by the plot. Um, that said, I, I personally feel this stuff about losing his nephew, losing his brother and the film, all of that stuff works really well. It's only really, I think that kind of Dickensian family Christmas that slightly kills it because for me, and I do sort of wonder, is that, does that play better in America? Do Americans think that because Picard, I know mean, he's not English, but like because we sort of accept Picard as coded as English, uh, that that's what English people 
uh, fantasize about <laughs> do you know what I mean like does, does that seem more believable across the pond but like I remember even at the cinema as a kid watching that and being like what the hell is going on here you know is this really this incredibly rich uh, thoughtful intelligent character is this this sort of slightly cheesy uh, like sort of Carlton Christmas card Christmas TV movie land that we're in somehow uh, is this really what his imagination is is throwing up because it seems so cliched and it seems so kind of over the top and so uh, embarrassing, really. That 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 one scene. And yeah, I think and I, that's I, the th- that's the thing for me. And I don't think it ruins the whole film, but I do think it's a kind of iconic moment in the film. And quite a lot is riding on that moment. And it's unfortunate that that, that for me is probably the worst scene, in the, the worst realised scene yeah. in the film. Um, in terms of the way that the production styles it all and, and, and sells it. Yeah, because... Well, largely because it makes no sense. I mean, this is the, you know, where are we? The 24th century? Mm. Christmas, if it still exists, isn't going to look like that. You know, <laughs> it doesn't uh, look like that now. It, it didn't look like no, that in 1995. Yes, so, I mean, it, arguably, it, you know, some people would argue it didn't even look like that in Dickens's time. It's a kind of No, it didn't because I believe, <laughs> I, well, my understanding of Dickens is that a Christmas carol is the reason we celebrate exactly. Christmas in a certain way. Yeah. So, um, so no, Christmas never looked like that. Um, and obviously it's Picard's fantasy. Okay. He can construct whatever fantasy he wants. But that is a bit of it's a it's a weird insight into his psyche, and I don't think it's meant to be. That's what it feels like. It's a bit like, oh wow, you've been you know uh, playing your cards close to your chest, John Luke. You know <laughs> what is of, this? <laughs> this is this is what you fantasize about. Of, yeah, that's right? a lot because uh, we've seen him on the holodeck as Dixon Hill. And yeah, so we know sure. About, we know he does have this sort of fantasy life, but this is a kind of fantasy life that is unexpected. So very that's. unexpected. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, the equivalent is him sort of warping into a parallel universe where it's all 70s porn mags. You know? <laughs> and no one would expect now, you know, Brad that. and Braga probably, that was probably in the first draft. No, it's there somewhere. <laughs> you know, one of them, either Braga or Moore had that idea and said, well, what if, what if Picard, you know, what if Picard wanted to be a kind of, you know, 70s hunk? And then they said, well, no, actually, I think he'd rather be a sort of Dickensian. I think Patrick Stewart might have gone for that one. Well, I think know, he, he would have. It was all about the and, sex and shooting you know, and everything, yeah. Would we... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Would we have preferred that version to yeah. the Dickensian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, and I don't know. I don't know. Um, it's, it's weird to just choose that time period. But I do agree with you. They're Americans writing it. And the audience is largely American. Yeah. You know, uh, again, we could look at the box office figures, but I promise you mm-hmm. that's where the most money was made. This is of American domestic box office. Would have done very well here. Would have done very well internationally mm-hmm. as well. Um, but not as well. So is that their image of us? And similarly, that's why the only reason I can imagine Downton Abbey's bothered making a movie mm. is that that kind of vision of Britain exports yeah, remarkably it well. It does. Far better than, as British people, we'd ever like to imagine it does. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder whether also, I mean, just as a slightly more serious point, one of the flaws maybe in the Nexus, and, and I think the film actually does address this, is that you sort of think, why is the, why is the fantasy for both these men what they didn't choose, you know, they both prioritised their career, they both prioritised this life in space, which Star Trek sells us as the big adventure, the most noble, the most exciting thing to do with your life. Okay, great. Sulu managed to have it 
or, you know, he's the guy, who, you know, he's the guy who has it all. He has the family and he has the, he keeps his job and so on and it gets promoted. Um, but that both these men have sacrificed uh, the domestic life and that they sort of yearn for the domestic life. And we do see that at other points as well. I mean, actually, Janeway, I always found it weird in that episode, Workforce, which I, I mean, this is a whole other episode. You know, I can't stand that episode. One of the things I don't like about it is it <laughs> yeah. basically tries to sell us this idea that Janeway doesn't really want to be captain. She doesn't really want to have adventures. She just wants to live a sort of cosy domestic life and she'd be much happier like that. And I, I just find that kind of hard to buy about any of these characters. And you sort of think, I was watching, I was thinking, why is the Nexus not... If it's really giving them what they want, isn't what they want something a bit more? Isn't what Kirk wants to be back on his five-year mission and to be young again and seducing all those alien women and having adventures every week and always coming out on top? Um, and then the film does kind of answer that question because the flaw in Kirk's fantasy is there's, you know, famously risk is our business and he realises there's no risk. He does that jump and it doesn't work. Uh, that It's just a... There's something hollow about it. It's just like a game. It's not, it's not real because it's not, because there's no mortality. There is no threat of death. There is no danger. Um, and that's the thing that really, that's the flaw in the Nexus. I suppose like a dream in a sense in that a dream can kind of be scary, but you can't actually get hurt in your dreams. Um, and maybe that kind of explains it. I think it does. It does sort of explain it again on paper, but at the same time, do we want to believe that these heroic characters that what they really dream of is is not being heroic, but retirement. When we've seen in the original series over and over again, Kirk hates retirement. And even the prologue to this film is all about how much Kirk hates retirement. And the one thing he wants is, you know, for the captain of the ship that he's on to leave the bridge so that he can take over. And yes, in the end, he kind of nobly says, all right, fine, no, you're, you're the captain. I'll, I'll go and do the, the other thing that he's doing. But it's so clear that what he wants is, with what he ends up saying to Picard, he wants to be back on the bridge of that ship. Why does the Nexus fool him into thinking that really he wanted not to be a captain? Isn't is that a flaw in the film? Because that is, it is all about nostalgia, but it's about a nostalgia for something that these men never had and never wanted. But it's not... Okay, yes. At the time. Maybe I, they want it in retrospect. No, I... I, it I um, it's a very tough question. On a character level, I absolutely agree with you. And then I'm forced to flip from character level to kind of audience level and what the, what what i guess more and, and, and braga were trying to do um is create some kind of pathos with the audience and the audience aren't on starships and we're not roaming the galaxy and um the idea that our heroes might want something a bit more ordinary and a bit more normal is perhaps supposed to resonate with us and we're supposed to mm-hmm. sit there and go oh Maybe I should look at, you know, and that our careers, exciting as they may be, aren't hopping galaxies, you know. Mm. They are, in fact, um, well, whatever they are, but maybe we should be looking, maybe it's meant to make us look at what we have and make us go, well, I need to check my priorities here because Mm. my hero, Captain Kirk, who once was trying to sleep with green women, um doesn't actually want that he wants something normal he wants to be able to kind of cook eggs in the morning and and uh and uh and ride his horse and picard well picard doesn't want to go around lecturing the universe on how you should behave uh picard instead would rather kind of be at home with uh, sort of strangely victorian dressed children and a wife who pours earl gray um 
you know, and maybe it's complicated, but maybe within all of that, we're supposed to, as an audience, take a view that all the fantasizing we do about what we definitely want actually then takes over from uh, from from us looking around at what we do have and focusing on that. And that's very difficult. I'm not. I, I can't speak for Brandon or more on that. Um, at what they what they wanted uh, from the screenplay and what they wanted us to believe. Uh, I can only say that it definitely resonated with me and has resonated with me for for a period of time, despite what you note quite correctly. It's an incongruity. I'm not sure I believe that the Nexus is giving these characters what they want, but I do certainly believe that the Nexus, as written and as presented in that film, is giving the audience a taste of what they want, Mm. or rather what they should indeed be focusing on and probably aren't because they're in the cinema watching Star Trek <laughs> Generations. But you know, wasting like, their life wasting watching, their Star, life Trek, watching yeah. Star Trek. So ba- basically <laughs> we're back to William Shatner's Get Alive, right? That's right, yeah, <laughs> That's totally. Good, yeah. Get alive, uh, get a life, get a girlfriend. Go back out make there, yeah. Ride uh, a horse. Ride a horse. You know, what the hell are you <laughs> get doing? Get a life, ride a horse. Uh, yeah. <laughs> get a life, ride a horse. Space nonsense. Is that the yeah. title for this podcast? Well, I think, I mean, I suppose the other issue is, you know, more, I mean, we both saw this film as kids. We enjoyed it a lot. We both talked about how as adults we go back to and certain themes resonate that maybe didn't as kids. Of course, we're probably both older now than Moore and Braga were when they wrote this film because they were very young working on Next Gen, weren't they? I mean, Braga was 25, I think, when he started on Next Gen and this would only have been a couple of years later. Mm. So these are young guys writing about old guys. I mean, you know, whether you want to say Patrick Stewart was an old guy but you, you know or I mean, me and you Kirk, are old <laughs> whatever Kirk uh, looks at him and says are you approaching retirement and Picard's like well I hadn't really thought about that but you know the fact is that is I suppose on the cards at some point you know these are guys sort of past the prime of, of life and yet the writers are both young you know they were the kind of young whiz kids of next gen do you know what i mean that they chose to write this film they didn't get i mean michael pillar turned it down because he didn't want to be because they did this weird competition thing and he he thought it was demeaning i think more and braga were up for it they were up for the challenge they were like yeah we'll give it a shot we'll do our best thing you know we'll bring in the klingons bring in this we'll do this here and they won the pitch and got to make the film but so i suppose there is that kind of interesting thing of um you know these are not older guys reflecting on life and reflecting on this stuff these are young guys imagining what it's like for older guys to to reflect on these kind of things and who knows maybe that kind of plays into it as well but i think generally you know uh it i think this is an unfairly maligned film in many ways I'd, i'd say clearly you do as well um and i think there's a lot to find in there as i say for my money maybe it's less than the sum of its parts but those parts are well worth engaging with you know on their own terms um but before we go chris do you want to let our listeners know where they can find you on social media if they want to carry on the conversation and tell you why they think uh diana troy is the best character in next generation or you know uh so, why uh picard's nexus experience is the it, it makes total sense in terms of what we see of him in the next generation how can they find you yeah i think they would be uh, good discussions. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at nonetheless. That's N U double N the less. Fantastic. And thanks so much for joining us again on Primitive Culture. Well, it's been fun talking about Star Trek Generations, uh, but that's not the only thing we've been talking about on Trek FM this week. So have a listen to what else you might have missed out on on the network.
previously on Trek.fm, Earl Grey. Okay, that's excellent. And it'll be interesting to see how we interpreted the topic because I know I may have interpreted it uh, maybe a little differently than others did. We'll see. Is this another time travel thing? No, I was, I was going to say no time travel for me as long as Jellicoe doesn't come into this. Sure. Okay, that's, so we'll make okay. that deal then. Awesome. <laughs> I'm in. All right. Literary treks. And, you know, the, the stakes are, are really big. You know, we'll, we'll get there, but, you know, this Borg ship threatens Earth and all this kind of stuff. And it just feels like it, it's, it's a lot of really comic booky, over-the-top stuff that doesn't quite fit right with the novel that came before it and the novel that came after it, if that makes sense. <laughs> Primitive Culture, a look at history and culture through Star Trek. And Next Gen Arriving was was this sort of, wow, wow, this is, looks incredible. I know when we look at sort of first season Next Gen now, what we're going is, wow, this is really slow and stagey. But in fact, it was, it was incredible. It was absolutely um, game-changing. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Only because I was watching little bits of Emissary recently is that he would see himself wearing that awful purple swimsuit and think, oh, God, I can't wear that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my god! Every time I see it, I'm like, whoa, I'm really glad I'm not wearing 24th century clothing. (laughs) If you wanted me to murder an entire society, fine. (laughs) But I'm not wearing that bathing suit. Too revealing. That's where I draw the line. (laughs) That's funny. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trekfm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons' website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trackfm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook, and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at, at Miss Amy Nelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co-hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at, at Clara Jean MC and Tony at, at AJ Black Writer. 
you're blended already.